Joshua chapter 8. And if you need a Bible to follow along with us in our Bible study, which I would encourage, then just lift up your hand. The ushers are walking up the aisles right now so that you can have a Bible. We are in Joshua chapter 8 and possibly chapter 9. Much of the Old Testament scripture consists of what Bible scholars call typical history. And what that means is that although the history, the recorded word that we study, actually happened, there's also a deeper meaning. There's a a story that's being told, a principle that's being illustrated that goes deeper than just the events of the story that's recorded. One person put it this way. For every New Testament principle, there is an Old Testament picture. In other words, to say that for all of the things that we learn or are taught about what we believe in the New Testament, there, are, there is one or many stories or historical events in the Old Testament that serve to illustrate the teaching or the principle that's presented to us in the New Testament. That's called typical history. And so oftentimes you'll hear in church a teacher or a Bible guy say that this is a type of, and then go on and on. And what he's basically saying is that this story is giving us a deeper illustration of a principle that applies to us in New Testament times. That's typical history, you see. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 10, in the NIV, I like the way the NIV says it. It says the same thing, means the same thing in the others, but I like the way it says it. It says, uh, through the prophet, God says, I spoke to the prophets, I gave them many visions, and I told parables through them. In other words, the things that happened in the history or in the lives of God's people in the Old Testament, weren't just events that happened coincidentally or circumstantially, but they speak to us. They illustrate principles that apply to our lives to help us to have insight into the life that we live as Christians. Now, as we've been going through some of the history of Israel in Deuteronomy and now in Joshua, we've seen the close connection that exists between what happened to them in their experience outwardly And how it relates to our experience spiritually as we relate to and walk with the Lord. We saw how the deliverance from Egypt represents or typifies is a type of salvation. They were freed from the bondage of Egypt, from the grip of the Pharaoh. Passing through the waters of the Red Sea, a type, a symbol of baptism. We saw how their wandering through the wilderness is a type or a, 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 you know, a parable, if you would, of the early years of the Christian life where many Christians wander. They know God, they're saved, but yet they haven't yet discovered their purpose, their gifts, and they're basically just waiting upon the Lord for what's next. We saw how the crossing of the Jordan River typifies or is a type of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
as God moves his people into their destiny and begins to reveal to them the purpose for their existence, why they've been created and saved, what their gifts are, what it is that his plan is for their lives. And so we've seen that type unfold through their experience translated into our lives. It's the typical history of the Old Testament. Well, we come now in the book of Joshua to a part where we're looking at the wars of Canaan or the conquest of the promised land. And you say, I understand the picture. I'm following the type through salvation and wandering and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what do the wars of Canaan have to do with the Christian experience? What insight is there for us to gain by looking at the battles that they fought outwardly? How does it relate to our experience spiritually as we walk with the Lord? Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you and I are in a war. There are real enemies in the war that we fight. There are real weapons in our warfare as we seek to fight. The war that we're in is ruthless and violent, as any war would be. The rules are kill or be killed. There is an enemy that seeks to destroy us, and if we don't destroy our enemies, our enemies will seek to destroy us. The booty is winner take all. It's playing for keeps, and there will be a certain outcome in the war that we are in. Either we will be, as Christians, victorious, standing in the power of God, or... We will be defeated, living wandering and listless lives. We're in a war. The Apostle Paul clearly expressed the principle of that war in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He said it this way. He said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, the war that we fight is not physical. There aren't Canaanites uncircumcised Philistines that are seeking to oppose us or stand in our way or knock us down. It isn't a physical fight. Your enemy is not your spouse or your boss or your siblings or your neighbors or the person across the church. Those are not your enemies in the war that we fight. It's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then Paul, in 2 Corinthians, after describing in Ephesians the nature of the war, he describes the weapons in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. And listen to what he says there. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, that is, that we exist in a physical realm, matter, what you can touch and feel. We do not war according to the flesh. Our fight is not in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not guns and swords and, you know, resources physically, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, if for every New Testament principle, there is an Old Testament picture, then the principle that we are examining as we go through the wars of Canaan is the very war that you and I walk in, live in, fight in every day as Christians in the world. And this segment of the book of Joshua is the picture that illustrates that principle of the war that we are in. Now, it's interesting to me that as we go through the book of Joshua, 
there will be 31 kings that will be dethroned and uh, dispossessed of their kingdoms, defeated. 31 kings in totality that Israel will overtake. But of those 31 kings and 31 battles that they will fight against these forces, only three of those battles are given to us in clear detail outlining for us how the entire battle went down. There's small sketches given here and there and other places, but for the most part, there's only three where large segments of scripture are donated or set aside to express to us what happened in those wars. Those three are with Jericho that we looked at this week, Ai, which we have in chapter 8, and the Gibeonites that we have in chapter 9. Now, I believe that the reason for that is not just so that we can get a flavor of the thing and then we kind of move through the rest. That's not the reason why. But I believe that the Holy Spirit purposefully highlighted and explained these three battles because they represent for you and I the three main enemies that we face in our Christian experience. The three enemies that we face as Christians are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three great enemies, the nemesis of the Christian and of the Christian life. Now, Jericho, the one that we looked at last week, Jericho represents the world. You recall that they didn't, actually two weeks ago, Jericho, you recall they didn't even have to fight in Jericho. They simply walked around the city and by faith, believing in the power of God, the walls fell and God completely dominated that battle. Jesus said, In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. John says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory whereby we overcome the world, even through our faith. So the world is a defeated foe. It's been conquered by Christ, thus Jericho, conquered by God, a type, a picture of our enemy, the world, being put under the feet of our Savior. The second enemy, Ai, that we looked at last week in chapter 7, Ai represents the flesh. It's the only battle that the children of Israel lost, that they suffered defeat and actually lives were spent in their failure to take the city of Ai. It represents the flesh. It was an underestimated enemy. They thought that it would be easy, that they would be able to throw some minor resources at it and that it would just go away, but they found that the strength of the flesh of Ai was much stronger than what they anticipated. And because of their overconfidence, their prayerlessness, and sin, they were defeated by AI, a perfect type of the flesh, how we, through overconfidence and prayerlessness and iniquity, fall prey oftentimes to number one enemy, our flesh, you know. And then the Gibeonites that we'll look at in chapter 9 represent the devil. They weren't necessarily defeated by them, but they were deceived, and we'll look at that as we come to it. But we pick up tonight in chapter 8 with the second invasion of ai this time successful last week they lost they got their tails tucked 
But tonight, they go into Ai the second time in a much different way, and this time they come out victorious. And what we gain through this chapter is insight into our battle against the flesh. Now, the first part of this chapter, the first segment of it, highlights for us how is it that we can deal with defeat and find victory through our failures. They failed in Ai. They lost. 36 men died. They fled. Their hearts were melted. The people were discouraged because they lost this battle. They said, God, where are you? This isn't supposed to happen. We're supposed to go from victory to victory, and here we're suffering defeat. And in chapter 8 now, we pick up on the other side of them dealing with those issues, and we come to our text. And so chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us as at the first that we will flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then you shall arise from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire according to the commandment of the Lord. You shall do. See, I have commanded you now this chapter starts in a much different way than the last chapter started chapter 7 began with the word but and it was a big but because it was a but that was about to describe a failure a fault a loss a disappointment a setback for the children of israel and it had to do with achan you remember the story He stole, he lied, he hid, he coveted, and God stepped in, and he would not be with them because of that. But this chapter starts with the word now. And I actually like the King James because the King James uses the word and. And that's a great encouragement to me. Because it means to me and it means to us that God is never through with us even though we fail. Now, every one of us fails. It isn't that we have to fail. But it's fact of the matter that we do fail. There's not one of us that doesn't from time to time fall in the battle, suffer loss, have a setback, blow it royally. You know, whatever you want to put in there to describe your own failure, we all fail from time to time. Now, the key is not to avoid failure. I mean, yes, we should avoid it at all costs, but but that's not the key, that our goal is that I am never going to fail in my Christian experience, because you are going to fail. And if that's your mindset, that I'm never going to let you down, God, 
then it's only a matter of time before you do. So it isn't about making the goal, I'm never going to fail. The question is, what do you do when you fail? How do you deal with the failure that comes? The Bible is full of examples of people that failed. From Adam to Abraham, these giants of the faith. From David to Peter, who denied the Lord, to Paul, who failed in Acts chapter 9 in Jerusalem. I mean, every person in the Bible that God calls, chooses, and uses fails, and sometimes in major ways, in horrible things. But the common ground that all of the failures of the Bible have, including you and I, hopefully, is that every one of them comes to a point where they stand again. And if you're taking notes tonight, that's the first thing. If you have failed or if you need to know how to handle failure in the Christian life, that's number one, is that you stand up again. Notice what God says to Joshua right there in the beginning. He, he's, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or dismayed. He encourages him. And then it says in verse 3, it says, so Joshua arose. And so even though they had failed, there was a setback. The people were upset. He stood up again in the midst of his failure. And that's the call that God has upon each one of us. He's not done with us. He's not done with you. You failed? Okay. Put it under the blood. Come back to the cross and stand up again and God will continue to lead you. Chapter 7 of your life might say, might say but, but chapter 8 of your life will say now. That was then, this is now, and the Lord would have us to stand. So that's number one, stand. What else do we do in failure or learn from failure? Number two that we see here in this text is that you go all in. Notice also with me there in verse one, what God says to Joshua. He says, do not be afraid nor dismayed. He said, take all the people of war with you and arise and go up to Ai. Did you hear that? Take all the people of war. In the last chapter, they sent only 3,000 men into Ai to fight the battle. In this one, God says, no, not half your resources, not a fraction, a quarter, or a part, but put all of the men in on this battle. Though it's only a small enemy, a small army that you're going against, it's going to require all of your energy, effort, and resources. And so he sends 30,000 men just in the ambush that goes behind the city. He dedicates another 5,000 to cut off the supply line between Ai and Bethel, the city that was closest to it, where they would flee to or get resources from. And then the rest of the army, a couple of hundred thousand, they're the ones that are going to approach from the front and do this kind of fake, you know, fleeing, runaway thing, you know. And so God basically tells Joshua, I want all the mighty men of war in on this one. It's going to take all of your resources. You have to commit it all. They greatly underestimated the strength of AI the first time. And it is true that you and I, in our flesh fight, in this war that we wage against this very formidable, small, yet strong and fordable enemy of our flesh, we greatly underestimate the power of it and its ability to subvert us and take us down. The Apostle Paul, after walking with the Lord for some time, described his own flesh fight in Romans chapter 7. We're all familiar with that scripture, at least if you've been around the Bible for a while. 
It's the argument that he has with himself where he realizes the things that I want to do, the good things, I find that I don't have the ability, the power to do them. But the things that I don't want to do, that I know I shouldn't do, those things I do without even thinking about it. So I find that there's this problem inside of me. I want to do good, but I can't do it. I don't want to do evil, but that just comes so naturally. And so he concludes this way concerning his own assessment of himself. He says, in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. He had to come to terms to realize that he had an enemy living within him and that it was a strong and powerful enemy. And here's the point for you and I, Christian, is that if we're going to win our battle against our flesh, seemingly small but yet a formidable opponent, we're going to have to be all in. We look at the world and we say it's such a grand enemy. There's so much in the world that's stacked against us. The whole system is just ready to collapse upon the Christian. We look at the devil and we say, man, look at the power of Satan. From the beginning of time, he deceived Eve. He's wreaked havoc. He's caused the world to be what the world is. He's such a powerful enemy. But then we look at our flesh and we say, really, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, we can handle it. It's, you know, it's really not that bad. You know, It is bad. It's real bad. Here's why. Because the world you can escape. The devil can only be one place at a time. But you can't get away from you. How about this humidity lately? My wife said to me, and I have permission to, to share this. <laughs> you know, it's become a custom. We don't have a swimming pool. We have a cold shower. And so last night, she took a, a, you know, a shower, as you know, is quite frequent in our house for all of us, kind of living in it, you know. And, and, and this was her comment after the fact. She said, I couldn't stand to be near myself. <laughs> you know, and, and that's true, isn't it? It's true for us when, when we've been in the humidity for too long, but it's true also for us spiritually after we've experienced what we are long enough. You just can't get away from it. I mean, look at the way you smell after you haven't washed yourself off for a little while. <laughs> you, you have to deal with it. You have to do something with it. And the same thing is true spiritually. The flesh is corrupt, it's wicked, and it's constant. It doesn't leave us alone. It's our worst enemy. And so you have to be all in in this fight against the flesh. Unless you're all in against the flesh, you're going to lose. You can't go part way and expect the flesh to just go away. It doesn't work that way. And so he commands Joshua, use all the resources. Do whatever you have to do, you're going to win this battle. The third thing that we see here is that he's called to step in or step back in, if you would, to the promises of God. Notice that God reaffirms the promise. He says, See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Now, ultimately, the failure of Israel at Ai was this, is that they fell into the common belief that we also fall into, that no matter what I do or how I live, because God promised it, he's also going to perform it. In other words, the way I behave or the decisions I make or how I order my steps has nothing to do with it. God promised it, and he's going to just do it. And what they learned is that it doesn't necessarily work that way. That just because God gave a promise in the Bible 
and I say, hey, I believe in God and I believe in the promises of God. Therefore, he's going to just do in my life all the things that he said he's going to do. Not so. Because if you have positioned your life in a place where God cannot do what he wants to do in your life, he will not do what he wants to do in your life. Because he's not going to bless our flesh. They took for granted his promise and they walked in overconfidence, prayerlessness, and sin. And God couldn't do for them what he was wanting to do with them. Now, here's what happens for you and for me. God doesn't come through in a way that we think he should. A situation doesn't unfold the way that we hope or planned or according to what we think the promise of God would dictate. And so we retreat from that defeat and we say, I guess the promises of God aren't as sure and secure as I thought. I guess God isn't going to just come through for me. Or maybe the promise is true for you or for him, but it definitely isn't what the reality is in my life or in my situation. No. The word of God does not lie. God doesn't lie. And his promise will always come true. The problem is not with God or with his promises. The problem might be with you. It might be that you are walking in a way where God cannot do for you what he wants to do for you. He still wants to bless you. He still wants to move you into the promised land. He still wants you to be the head and not the tail. He still wants you to stand and not to fall. That's his will for your life. And those promises are true for your life. But if you're walking in a way where you're not trusting in him or where you're not seeking him or where you're allowing sin to be part of your camp, your life, then God's not going to fulfill those promises in your life because he's not going to bless your flesh. But the promises of God don't fail. So once you deal with those things and you stand up again and you say, okay, God, I'm willing to move forward, now it's time to re-embrace those promises and say, no, God, you promised that you're going to give me AI. You promised that there's going to be victory. You promised me that, 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 that I will be delivered from this body of death through the power of Christ. And so, Lord, I embrace that promise, and now let me go forward in it. And so they embrace the promises again. Next thing, and this is parenthetical. Notice there at the end of verse 2, it says, Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush behind the city. Did you hear that? If Achan had just waited a couple days... He would have had all of the gold, all of the silver, and all of the Babylonian clothing that he could have wanted. But because he wanted something that wasn't prescribed for him in God's timing, it cost him his life, and it cost Israel a defeat. How often is that true in our lives? Is that we want something so bad that we take it, and we fail to wait on the Lord, and it turns out to be a disaster? When maybe it was God's will all along to do the thing in your life that was your desire, it just wasn't time yet. And so a woman will marry an almost Christian husband that she is believing that God is going to save because she wants it so bad and not willing to wait upon what God promises it is ultimately going to do. A person will take an almost perfect job or put themselves into an almost perfect house or whatever the case might be, walking ahead of God, but not submitted, waiting upon God for him to do his best. He lifted the ban just one battle later. It all would have been his if he had just waited. God, give us patience. 
The next thing that we see them doing here, and, and it's, it's the principle there, we see it in verse 5, is that they learn from their mistakes. Look at it again. It says, Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out us against us as at the first. Do you see that? As at the first. In other words, they were defeated. They fled from before their enemies. But in that battle, they learned something about the nature of their enemy. They knew that the tendency of the men in Ai would be to see them and jump out after them. And so they took what they learned in their defeat and then they applied it to their battle the second time and let the defeat help them obtain the victory. They learned from the mistake that they made the first time. We have to learn through the things that we fail in. Do you understand that? We make mistakes, we fail, we fall. But if we learn from those mistakes, then we can use them to our advantage. It was Henry Ford that said uh, that failure is an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. And and there's so much truth in that. As we take the things that we've been defeated in, and and then we learn and use those things to win, you know, in the battles that that we, we fight. And so, you fall. You have a weakness that you discover in your flesh. And you begin to discover after a while that certain places or certain people or certain things that you see or certain things that you do or hear, that those things set you up to fall and to fail in that area where you struggle in your weakness. Well, to learn from your failures is to recognize that those things are a vulnerability to you and then to avoid them or to use them, uh, that, that knowledge or that information in a way that it helps you. Now, wisdom is to avoid those things or to prepare yourself for those things that set you up to fall. Foolishness is to know what they are, to willingly embrace them, and to fall over and over again. Somebody said one time that the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. And there's truth in that. I talk to people all the time. You know, people ask spiritual advice. They talk about their battles, the things that they're struggling with. And oftentimes, I give them advice and, 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 you know, we figure out what the problem is and how those things happen. And the counsel I'll give is just stop doing those things or stop putting yourself in the situation where you're going to have that problem or fall into that temptation or whatever it might be. And oftentimes, the the reply that I get is not so um, forthright, but but it's what they say basically, well, I can't do that. And then I say, well, I can't help you. And then they get upset, you know, that, and, and a lot of times that's what happens. I, I remember I was never a big Saturday Night Live uh, watcher, but I've seen it a handful of times. And I remember that there was one sketch. I don't know who was in it. I, I can't tell you when, what year it was or anything else, but it was the psychiatrist and he would see these people and they would come to tell him their problems and, and they would barely get a sentence out of their mouth and he would slam his hand down on his desk, you know, scream at them and say, stop it. And, and, then, and then he'd sit back in his chair like he just had a Tourette or something, you know. And then they'd go on and he'd say, stop it, you know. And I wonder how many times the Holy Spirit would counsel us that way. We say, Lord, how come I keep falling into this sin? Why, why is it that I can't get victory over it? And he would just say, stop it. What are you doing? Look at, you're putting yourself in that position. 
learn from your mistakes, capitalize on your failures, and put them to work for you so that you can obtain the victory. We see Joshua and the children of Israel doing that here in this way. Now, a couple of other things that we notice in, you know, the segment that we read there in verses 1 through 8, it's worthy of mentioning, is that God chose in this battle against Ai to employ a completely different method than he did in their fight at Jericho. At Jericho, they didn't have to fight. The walls fell down of their own accord. It just was a, a thing that happened by faith. But here in Ai, he calls them to employ every resource they have to plan, to strategize, to utilize all of their resources and all of their troops, all of their men, and to do it intelligently, to do it smart. And here's the point, is that God doesn't do the same thing the same way all the time. He has a million different ways to take a city or to accomplish his will or to lead a church or to work in a city or to do anything that he wants to do at any time. He can do it in any way. And I have discovered, and maybe you have too, that God refuses and despises the boxes that we try to put him in. At least for me, I can say with assurance, God has never submitted to the boxes that I have tried to put him in. I'll experience a season of drought spiritually, a couple days. Lord, I I don't sense your presence. I'm reading the word, but nothing's going in. And then... I'll, I'll purpose in my heart, you know what, I'm just, I'm not going to live this way, and so I'm going to get up extra early tomorrow morning, and I'm going to seek the Lord, and I don't care what obstacle there is, I'm pressing in. And so I'll get up early, I'll open the word, I'll start to pray, and God will show up. And man, there's just this, it's like Pentecost all over again, it's like he's there, he's speaking, his word is clear, the Bible is alive, the prayers just take off, you start praying for something 45 minutes later, you're still praying. You're like, Lord, yes, this is what I'm thirsty for, your presence, you. And then what happens is this, is that I build a little box, and I say, I'm going to do that again tomorrow. And I say, God, and you're going to be in this box, and tomorrow I'm going to come, and I'm going to open this box, and I'm going to do the same thing that I did today, and you're going to meet with me. And you know what? I get up early. I open the Bible. Lord, I so... Be in your presence. And it doesn't work. (laughs) I'll press and I'll fight and I'll strain and I'll sweat and I'll read and I'll declare. And it's like I'm going through the motions. And it doesn't matter if it's prayer. It doesn't matter if it's preparing a Bible study for me or the way I teach or lead my kids or my family or, or the way I would do anything else. Every time I try to put God into a box, God refuses to get into the box that I put him in, try to put him in. He doesn't do that. He'll do Now, he doesn't ever step outside the parameters of his word. He's given the box that he will walk in. He will walk in the parameters of his word. He will not walk in the things that we try to create and make for him. When I'm dealing with my kids, and, and I'm, when I say dealing, I mean living alongside of them. The thing that grieves me the most as a dad in dealing with my kids is when I start to get the sense that they are doing things just to get my approval. Saying certain things, doing certain things because they want an encouraging word or because they just want to know that I love them. When I get that sense, and I get that sense from time to time, it breaks my heart. That they feel like they have to be a certain thing in order for me to love them. 
If they get the feeling that I'm not, I, I don't, they're not my favorite enough, I tell them all that they're my favorite. You know, my wife doesn't like that, you know, but they are. They're all my favorite, you know. And, and, and when they start to get the feeling like I need to do something to win my dad's favor, that breaks my heart. And oftentimes the boxes that we put God in are our attempt to try to win his favor. He doesn't do that, and it grieves his heart. He moves different ways in different times, in different situations, and he knows exactly what he's doing, and he loves us. He does it differently. It's also worthy of noticing here that strategy is not unspiritual. There's some people that would think that to walk in the spirit means that you walk with your head in the clouds, that you're just a space case, that there's no order, no structure in your life whatsoever, that you just go by the spirit and do whatever God says. Now, there are some people like that, and God loves those people, and God blesses those people. And, and, and that's okay if you're one of those people. But it is not unspiritual to be a person who plans, who strategizes, who orders their steps. We see that here through Joshua. He makes a very careful plan, and then he follows it. It's spirit-led, spirit-driven, and spirit-prospered, and spirit-blessed. Uh, At Jericho, God showed the children of Israel that he is God and that for him, nothing is impossible. At Ai, he's going to show them that he is their God and that with him, nothing is impossible for them. So they organize, they strategize, they fight. Now, I also think that there's some practical insight into the nature of the flesh fight in this plan. For me, again, and I can only speak for me, the sins of the world you know, ambition, power, worldly ways, worldly language, those things for me, easy. I find that I have no, no trouble. I don't, I don't struggle with those things. It's easy. It's as though the walls just fall down for some of those worldly sins. But fleshly sins, pleasures, passions, moods, temptations, things of that nature, I find that those things are much more difficult. The world sins, I don't need a plan. They just seem to fall. There's victory. Jesus provides it. But fleshly sins, at least for me, there has to be a plan. There's got to be strategy. There must be vigilance, or else I find myself falling into those things, those old ways again. And so uh, there's strategy here. It's not unspiritual that there's strategy. Now, in verses 9, all the way up through verse 28, the battle goes exactly according to plan, exactly according to how it was laid out. That's how it happened. Ai falls. The ambush works. The cutoff to Bethel with the 5,000 troops is successful. They even take out some of the men of Bethel. We learn that in the story. And then we resume here in verse 28. It says, So Joshua burned Ai, and he made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Now, isn't it amazing how many heaps of stones we've already seen been erected there in, I mean, I think this is the fourth heap of stones. And, and it, you, you'd be amazed. You walk through Israel in his day and you say, Dad, what's that heap of stones for? Oh, I'm not sure what that one's for. I think that one's Ai. No, that one's Achan. This one's Ai. And, and you know, that's the crossing. There's a lot of heaps of stones, you know, as God moves them on and gives them victory in this. But now in verse 30, there's an interesting pause 
in the process of this conquest. Look with me. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, that's Deuteronomy, it's chapter 27, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger, as well as he who was born among them, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in the front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Now, they've just experienced their second victory. They've conquered Jericho. Now they've defeated Ai, and the momentum is back in their favor. And you would think that this is the time now for us to capitalize on this move. We've made it halfway through towards the great sea. It's time to push on. There's enemies to conquer, to go forward. And Joshua at this point says, no. He says, we're going north. And you can leave your swords in the camp here at Gilgal. And they travel a couple of days for a congregation that size. They travel a couple of days up to this place in the valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And they're going to do something that Moses commanded them to do. In Deuteronomy 27, just days before Moses died, he ordered them to do what they now do here in chapter 8 of Joshua. The scene is prescribed specifically by Moses what they're to do. They're to erect an altar on Mount Ebal. They're to plaster stones and write the words of the law upon those stones. They're to pronounce the blessings from one of the mountains through the amphitheater valley and then pronounce the curses from the other side through the amphitheater valley so that all of the nation of Israel hears the word of God with its blessings and its cursings again. And Joshua says, we're going to do what God, through Moses, told us to do when we came into the land. It doesn't make sense militarily. It's not a good strategy as they're moving from place to place. But it's the perfect time for them to do it. Because at this point in the text, they've experienced the very thing that they're about to do. See, the purpose of this exercise was to pronounce that, hey, if you obey, there's going to be blessing. But if you disobey, there's going to be cursing. And now they've experienced that. At Jericho, there was obedience, and it was coupled with great blessing. The walls fell down. But at Ai, there was disobedience, and the result was loss of life. And Joshua says, no, pause. It's time for a Bible study. We're going to go and we're going to seek the Lord at this point. 
We're not going to be so busy in our movement and our conquest of the land that we leave God out. And listen, church, that's the principle that's being told to us, pressed upon us here in these verses. Isn't it always in the days of conquest, when things are busy, when life is happening, when blessings are abounding, when God is just doing things in our lives, isn't it then that we seem to put his word and his church on the back burner of our lives? That we forget to read all the words of God's Bible that he's put before us? We, we, we fade away from those things. We say, Lord, I don't have time for that right now. I'm in a battle. There's, there's, there's victories to win. There's territory to take. There's blessings to obtain. And God says, no. You must remember that it's only in me, through me, because of me, and through my instructions that you will continue to prosper in the thing that I've called you to do. So come aside. That's the principle. Come aside. Spend time in the word. Don't stop taking in the scriptures. Don't stop gathering together, meeting with the church, taking in my word, Because your relationship with me is always more important than what you're doing for me or what you're experiencing of me. And so he leads them now to this point and he says, this is a priority. It has to happen this way. And listen, that's a real key as it pertains to our fight and our victory over our flesh is that we stay in the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How did Jesus defeat the temptations that were hurled at him? He did it by responding to the temptation with the words, It is written. And then immediately quoting scripture, knowing the word of God. And once we as a church, as Christians, put the word of God on the back burner, we set ourselves up for failure. And so chapter 8, in conclusion, as we talk about this fight that we have with our flesh, the principles that God lays out before us that will give us the victory is that we're to stand up after we fail. What did Jesus do to Peter after Peter denied him three times? He restored him, he set him on his feet, and he recommissioned him, told him to go. Step into the promises of God. If something has not worked out the way you thought, it isn't because God's promise has failed. It's because there's something in your life that he wants to adjust. So make the adjustment and then step back into the promise of God and enjoy the blessing that he has for your life. Number three, go all in. Don't go halfway. Don't say, okay, well, God, I'll go this far but no further. I'll go to church on Sundays, but I'm not going to talk about you publicly. I'll stop doing these couple things, but Lord, you know that there's some other things that are just way too much a part of my life for me to really give up. And so I'll go this far, but no, 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 you can't win that way. Go all in, God says. Employ every resource, defeat and conquer the enemy within. Number four, learn from your mistakes. Take the past failures and the places where you have fallen and employ the things that you've learned in that to obtain victory in the future. And number five, so important, stay in the word. Stay in the word of God day by day, moment by moment. Every chance you get, absorb the scripture. Turn on the Christian radio station. Listen to the Bible studies. Make it a priority to be in church when the Bible is being taught, no matter how inconvenient it might be. Make it priority number one for you, for your family, 
for your life because it's the word of life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And here will be the result, is that AI will fall. You will find your flesh losing ground, and you'll find yourself rising above it and experiencing the glory of God. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. We thank you for the wisdom that you give us through the scriptures. We thank you for these timeless principles and truths that never fail, they never grow old, they never don't work. For we always find, Lord, as we take what you say and apply it to our lives, we find strength, we find life, we find you in it, Lord. Somewhere in it, you're there. We find your voice in it, Lord, giving us instruction and wisdom. We find peace in it, Lord, as cares just seem to roll off us, unaffected. And so, Lord, we pray tonight as a church, congregationally, and as Christians, individually, that you would give us victory, that we wouldn't fall day after day and year after year to AI, this underestimated, powerful force that's within us, but that, Lord, we'd find victory as we stand in your promises and walk in obedience to you. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that this would be a night of rededication for many here. Lord, that if there's any here that came in tonight and and their hearts are melted like water, that they've suffered so much defeat at the hand of Ai, they've watched parts of their lives just dissolve, disappear, the roots dried up. They've come discouraged, thinking, well, I'll never have victory. I'll never, never beat that thing. Lord, that tonight would be a night that they would stand, that they would arise, that they would remember the promise that they would embrace the word and that they'd go after you with full force and that they'd find victory. And so, Lord, we ask that your, your spirit would be here to heal, that even right now, Lord, you would flood dry hearts with living water, that you would give new life, revived hope, new strength, that you would bring your word to life afresh and anew. I pray that each person here, Lord, as they rise early and open the word of God and open their mouth to speak to you, Lord, that they would find you there, willing to speak, to, to commune, to fellowship. That late at night, Lord, they would retire with you. That truly there would be a Psalm 139 experience. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? In the morning, in the rising of the dawn, you're there. In the evening, in the far side of the sea, you're there. In the rising and the setting of the sun, there's no place where your spirit does not reside. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk in the light of your spirit. Father, we pray for more of you, that the blood would cover us, that the spirit would fill us and empower us, and that we might exist to the praise of your glory. Be with us, Lord. We thank you so much for this word in this time. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand.